0: before another one begins this evening. And that's a good thing. So welcome those of you who have come to hear and those of you who are on the phone line and couldn't be here for various reasons. A few announcements first of all. Uh, We'll be meeting again tomorrow at 1 o'clock being on uh, the first holy day of the Passover season. 1 o'clock tomorrow. And then for you out in the hinterland, for the most part, we'll have a service at six o'clock in the evening through the week. The, the, the last day will be a Sabbath again, so that's, uh, that'll be at one o'clock. I think that's the way it worked out. Uh, anyway, all through the week at six o'clock. So, translate that to your local time, and we'll be on the phone line, of course. Uh, And tonight, of course, again, is Passover. Uh, The Passover service should begin shortly after sundown, which is at 819, uh, local time here. And since Jerusalem is just north of us, we don't go to the Middle East, Jerusalem, which is an Arab city. We figure the time from right here in the original promised land in Jerusalem. So uh, we should be trying to get in and get settled and Uh, so on by maybe eight or shortly thereafter and be ready uh, in a uh, mood for the Passover by shortly after sundown. And we also have some baptisms scheduled for this afternoon. Uh, We'll do those at six o'clock over in the church hall. We've had the the horse trough over there for years that uh, has seen many sins washed away. Uh, and we, instead of moving it over here or something, we decided to just leave it there. There is a hot water heater and we can get it above freezing for you. So, uh, and, and that isn't always possible. We had a couple baptisms, when was it, two years ago at the feast uh, up at Navajo Lake? Uh, And it was liquid ice. It hadn't turned quite to solid ice, but it was cold. So this will be more pleasant. We might go to a more idyllic place, more natural, if if we had time. But with people coming in from out of state and various things uh, and some counseling needing to be done, After potluck in between there and Passover, we don't have long, uh, you know, time to make a long trip somewhere else, so we'll just do it here. So 6 o'clock over at the hall for any who might want to come and uh, take that in. I started out thinking about Sermon material for this time of year, and it needs to be timely. Uh, and considering where we are, uh, a book of the Bible came to mind. Called the Song of Song, of, Songs, I can't say it, Song of Solomon or the Song of Songs, and uh, the Jews read this particular book every year at Passover time. Now, I'm not sure why they do, and I didn't look into it because I could frankly care less what the Jews do and why they do it, but the story here is, and I'll say this ahead of time, and I think most of you probably already understand it, the primary message here is of Christ and His bride. And I'll prove that to you a little later on, that that's not just an analogy that I'm drawing but that it can be shown in Scripture to be the case. And the Jews don't accept Christ, so they have some other reason for reading it, and I don't, as I say, know why. But as I thought about this book and the true meaning of it, it began to expand uh, far beyond just the parameters that are here. So I think instead of just saying Song of Songs, we'll uh, call this Preparing the Bride because it has a lot of ramifications in other scriptures. Uh, However, today I want to at least start into this book because there's a part of it back here that I think we need to be considering at the beginning of and perhaps even before the Passover service. So instead of everything preparation today, I want to dive right into it pretty quick here and then fill you in on the true meaning and show other scriptures to back it up a little later on. Uh, Herbert Arms, uh, well, let's back this up just a moment here. There are those who call this particular book nothing but a sex manual. That's all it is, is it tells you how to have sex. Uh, Frank Nelty is a proponent of that. It has no meaning, no symbolism, it's just a sex manual. Uh, I'll tell you it's a whole lot more than that, and that's probably in some ways the low end of it. Uh, but... Uh, He gets into some things to the point where it is a striving after words, and he gets lost in the 14 different meanings of a Hebrew word. You can't see the forest for the trees. He'd probably go back here where it says, I'll get me down to the garden of nuts and be looking into the 12 meanings of Hebrews for that and forget what the story was all about. So, uh, it's more than that, believe me. Herbert Armstrong wrote a book, which probably most of us have read, called the missing dimension in sex. Now, he was looking at the relationship in a marriage, a sexual relationship, at more as more than just a physical thing between a husband and a wife. And the missing dimension that he saw was a spiritual dimension, that it had meaning far beyond what people would consider as just a physical thing. And far beyond what Frank Melty is willing to say, this is talking about. Uh, you have to be very, very careful not to add to or take from God's Word. And Frank says you have to think above Scripture. Uh, that just scares me completely. Because you can't add to or take from Scripture. And any human being on this earth has difficulty thinking up to Scripture. And if you think you can think above it, you're putting yourself and your mind above God. Because He wrote Scripture, and every word is inspired, and we're to live by every word of God, not something that we surmise is higher than God's thoughts. And He says, my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. So, uh, let's get something clear here. Uh, we go by the word of God and let it interpret it itself. And if we don't like when the foot washing and the Passover service order is, and we just decide to throw Luke out because he wasn't a high, an eye witness, uh, that's throwing one out of sixty-six books out of the Bible. It's taking from it, and the Book of Revelation warns carefully about that. So let's uh, let's understand that before we go into these things and see what God says. And let's not forget the simplicity in Christ. And the simplicity in Christ is that things should be easily understood by an open mind that has the Spirit of God. They shouldn't be that difficult to understand. And when people get to arguing about Hebrew and Greek, uh, they get into an area that Paul called striving after words. And he says, do not do it. It is not wise. It is not right. You will, When you start striving after words, like some scholars so-called do, they lose the meaning. And they can't find the true meaning very frequently because they're so worried about what one little word back here does. You've got to get the context. You've got to get the principle. That's what God does. And that's what he said the simplicity that is in Christ. So I think as we get into this, we'll see that it is really simple. When you understand the symbolism and the meaning, then the spiritual value is incredible. Herbert Armstrong, frankly, didn't really know a whole lot about a sex relationship physically. He married a woman who was a very strict Victorian And it was basically wrong except for procreation and certainly not for recreation, even in marriage. And he experienced very little of an actual physical relationship in his long-term marriage with Loma because of her upbringing. I'm not saying that she was a wonderful woman. Don't get me wrong. I'm not putting her down. So he didn't understand an awful lot about physically what it's all about. He could have benefited a lot by carefully reading this, but with a partner who was not in the least interested, in fact, basically disinterested, uh, even that wouldn't have helped him a whole lot. But the point I'm trying to get to is that even with a somewhat limited knowledge of some of the things that this book talks about physically, he zeroed in on the spiritual side of it which is far more important than the physical. And the physical is only a type of a bigger, better, more intimate spiritual relationship that we must have with Christ. And I'll be showing you that. So, let's dive right into the book here just a little bit. I'll go a certain distance and see how far I get and then begin some backup. He says, the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. Now, the interpreters or translators called it the Song of Solomon, and that is not the name that should be on it. The name for it is in the first verse. <laughs> the Song of Solomon of Songs, which apparently Solomon wrote. But when it says Song of Songs in the Hebrew, and you can use it at times... Uh, Song of songs is in the superlative form, meaning that this is truly the song of songs, or the best of all songs. Now, when somebody says, well, that's, that's the ultimate of a song, or the ultimate of an athlete, that is the athlete of athletes, or that is a man among men. Well, this is the song among songs. Okay? This is the best song ever written. Now, that puts it on a pretty high level. you got Miriam's song after they crossed the Red Sea. Pretty powerful song. She was full of joy and happiness and thanksgiving at having been delivered and walked across and the Mitzrayamites drowned. And that's a pretty powerful song. That they sang there on the other side of the Red Sea. But this is the song of songs, above even that. And the reason I'm emphasizing this is that when I show you some scriptures to back that up, you're going to see that this is a well named song. You could call it poem, you could call it song, but whether it was put to music, I do not know. Uh, Most of the psalms were put to music, and we didn't have that music anymore, and Dwight Armstrong put quite a few of them to music. Uh, Maybe it's not the same music that was in the past, and I'm sure it'll get transferred into better music in the future, because it will be totally godly, and how that it is read and sung. But let's understand that, that this is God's number one best song ever as it self-proclaims. So it's got to be important. That's my point. This is an important book of the Bible. It's overlooked, because it sometimes is classed just as a sex manual. No, it's a lot more than that. And we'll get to that. Anyway, "...let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth." Just dives right into the physical here pretty quick. "...for your love is better than wine." Now, wine is one of the better things on earth, if you will. When God talks about how He is going to begin to bless His church again, Joel too. He says, with the wheat and the corn and the wine, the fruit of the vine. And any time He mentions blessings throughout most of the prophecies, if He starts naming things that He is going to restore, wine is usually listed. And even when He says there in Isaiah 55, I think it is, come and have milk and wine without money. So wine is a very important thing and good wine can make food taste better. Bite of succulent steak in your mouth and you add a little bit of wine to that and ooh, that's nice. So uh, your love is better than wine. So you take One of the best things that God has given us physically to eat or drink, and the kisses of the people who are involved here, as we shall see later, is considered better than wine. And even a straight old kiss, if you both had a drink of wine first, is not bad either. It kind of enhances it a little bit. So, he uses superlative language here to start out. Because of the savor of your good ointments, your name is as ointment poured forth. So, what did they give Christ when he was born? As a babe. They brought him frankincense uh, um, and myrrh. And there's one other and I it slips from my mind. Frank, Frank, What is it? Frankincense? Yeah. I just couldn't say it. I'm getting old. Uh, so, Uh, an ointment, a sweet smell. Uh, That's always nice. Beats body odor anytime. Uh, Therefore, do the virgins love you? Now, this isn't starting out just as two people here. See that? Here's, Here's what will be a married woman and man in the story a little later on. And here it says the virgins are chasing after him. Well, Why would they be chasing a married man? That's fornication and adultery. That doesn't make sense. Well, it will when we grasp that this is talking about Christ and his bride. He has, ultimately, 144,000 individuals who will comprise his bride. And those have been being called from... Enoch and Noah, on down through history until today, when many, many are being called and then chosen to fill out the number. So the analogy starts out like a man who the girls are all after, if you will, but it shows later on that there's a marriage involved, and maybe the story started out with everybody chasing this man, but she married him, I I could see how that could fit in the story, but also the fact that we are all here, and others like us in other places, who are seeking Christ. He is the ultimate champion. He is the ultimate prize, and we can share in that. As a, it's hard for us to understand, because he made us to be one man, one woman, until death, ideally. And he is going to marry 144,000 of us. And you can get too technical about that. Well, I'm a man. How am I going to be the bride? You know, it doesn't matter. Human beings, man or woman, can be part of the bride of Christ. So I just content myself with I'm not going to be a woman, but I'm going to be part of the bride, whatever that means. And I don't have to get too technical and try to figure all that out and spend days and weeks thinking about it uh, because you could go nuts. It's like trying to figure out how big is the universe. I remember laying on a haystack when I was a kid in West Texas looking up at all those stars and I'd think, how far does it go? And I'd go as far as my mind could think and then I would put up a wall. That's as far as it goes, as far as I can imagine. And then a little bit I'd think, well, what's on the other side of the wall? You know, it's it's limitless. So there comes a point where you're wasting your time. Get the point. Get the picture and move on and not worry too much about all the details. I love a hummingbird, but I don't have to dissect it and figure out how every piece and part of that bird works. I'd rather watch him buzz around than I had dissect him. Okay? Thankfully, he's there. Anyway, <clears throat> says verse 4, draw me... We will run after you. The king has brought me into his chamber. So it goes from plural to singular there. Like maybe all the girls were after you, but you brought me into the chamber. And we are all pursuing Christ. And a lot of people who are in so-called Christianity, that they, are, they think pursuing him. But he's only going to bring certain ones into his chamber. That's what we're talking about. We will be glad and rejoice in you. We will remember your love more than wine. The upright love you. So here he takes it to the upright, the righteous, the ones who will follow a right course, a right path, a path of righteousness, are the ones that are considered to be taken into his chambers. That would be his bedchambers, okay? Or the inner part of his home. They're the ones that could be taken there. So it is singular and plural at the same time because it ultimately you have to get it down to understand in human terms of one man, one woman. But he is including enough here to let us see what we'll see in Revelation 14 and other places. His bride will include a lot of individuals changed. Now, you brought me into your chambers. Well, the upright love you. And then the bride begins to question herself a little bit. I am black, but I'm still pretty good looking. Oh, you daughters of Jerusalem. So she's comparing herself to the daughters that might not have been included here. Says the tents of, uh, the tents of Kadar as the curtains of Solomon, which were uh, made of, of hides of various sheep, goats, and so on, cattle perhaps. I've seen some of the Bedouin tents in the Middle East, and Jordan particularly, and uh, they're kind of beautiful because they're just hides that have been turned into a tent. So she says, look, girls, I may be dark like the hide on a, on a tent, but I'm still pretty good looking. So she has to admit that she's got some things right. And then she says, look not upon me because I am black because the sun has looked upon me. So she says, I was maybe very white-skinned, and then I got out in the sun, and then I got this suntan, maybe some sunburn, and I'm not as maybe as good-looking as I was or ought to be, is what she's trying to say. I'm black because the sun looked upon me. It doesn't have anything to do with race here. I know black people who try to say it says well here it says she was black and then they don't read on it says I am black because I got a suntan <laughs> no she was lighter colored and got tanned and then says I'm black or dark so there's, there's not a racial point to be made there other than she wasn't black by birth anyway she explains why my mother's children were angry with me They made me the keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard have I not kept. She says, They put me to work, and they put me out here to tend the vines, and the sun got to me, and I'm not as pretty as I ought to be. And here I've been brought into the chamber, and I didn't have time to fix myself up and clean myself and dress myself up. I'm not really worthy to be here. Now isn't that the way we feel when we consider ourselves... Going to marry Christ, it makes me feel frustrated, discouraged even, to think that He would want to marry some of us, and not one of us is what we ought to be. So, the story fits our view of ourselves. You know, you're coming to marry me? Sorry, I'm not looking at my best, (laughs) and even at my best, I'm not what I ought to be which is the attitude we ought to have, that he is humble and contrite of spirit. And Christ even said, the one that says, come and get me, Christ. I am the perfect bride for you. I have it all. I'm the prettiest woman on earth. Uh, My character is sterling. I'm a Pharisee. I have no wrong. I don't have one job." One tittle, one iota wrong. I count all the cunin can- and mints and anise. Every seed, I count them all out to be sure I give you 10%. How long does it take to count a bottle of seeds that you can barely see and separate them out? Nine for you, one for me. Nine for you, one for me. Well, they might get it right. I might miss one in there, though, when counting like that, it, you know. But maybe they'll get it right. On the other hand, would it have been better to do it by the cup full? Nine cups for you, one cup for me. Or the shovel full? Nine for me, one for you. Or dump truckload of wheat? Nine for me, one for you. You're going to be off a few grains one way or the other. But, okay. Wheat grains, ten truckloads. Here we go. Maybe some of that time ought to be spent praying for the widow who has need. And so, you think, well, if I don't count every one, I might be a little short. Well, okay, throw a few shovel mores on. Big deal. In other words, when we get into too much finite detail, we lose the picture. And she said, okay, I'm not everything I ought to be. And I'll not be a Pharisee and tell you I'm everything ought to be because that's what they told Christ. We're of our father Abraham. We're perfect. Nothing wrong with us. And he says, there's hardly anything right about you. You serpents, snakes, white and sepulchers. Shall I go on? So we're better off saying, I know I'm not qualified. I know I'm not worthy. Can't raise our eyes. Be merciful to me, a sinner. Instead of, here I am, Lord, I know you want me. See the difference? There's a song I've heard some time back called, She Don't Know She's Beautiful. She's Just Not That Kind. It's a country western song back in the 70s, I think. But I would much rather have a woman who looks good but didn't know it. You know, in college, I I knew a lot of girls who were just gorgeous physically. But they knew it. And they were vain and egocentric and, and shallow because they'd always gotten by on their beauty instead of their brains. And yeah, they're pretty and would have made nice arm candy, but I didn't want to marry them. I didn't want that kind. You want one with some depth and some brains and some capacity rather than just physical beauty. But physical beauty is used here uh, as as part of the analogy. But let's look at it as spiritual beauty. If we're talking about Christ and His bride, she was saying, I'm not spiritually everything I ought to be. I'm sorry, I fall short of the mark. And I know I'm not completely prepared. I'm not ready. How can I be the bride of Christ? And that's the kind of humble... Approach that he would have us have. So, she's saying, other things got in the way and I'm not completely prepared. Then verse 7, she says, Tell me, O you whom my soul loves. said, so I may not be as pretty as I ought to be, but I love you anyway. And I want to know where you feed, where you make your flock to rest at noon. Uh, maybe I want to bring you lunch. I want to be with you. I know you're busy tending the flock, but where do you stop for lunch and can I be there? Uh, He says we'll ever be with him once we are changed. We will never leave his side again. Even when he comes back to put down the the earth's remnant at the end of the seven last plagues after the honeymoon, he says that those clothed in white will come with him. And I think it's Jude says we'll ever be with him. Never leave him again. He's left us now. He went up there. And he's coming back. So he says, I'll be back, and once I come back for you, we'll never be parted again. So that was the feeling she had here. I don't want to be away from you for hours. I I want to be there at noon. For why should I be as one that turns aside by the flocks of your companions? Says, well, there's other shepherds out here herding the flocks and around. I don't want to be with them. I want to be with you, my beloved. So she's single-minded here. She's not looking around at the other guys. No. I want to be with you. This is to be special in this relationship. Do you begin to see why fornication, adultery, Any kind of sex outside of marriage is such a grave sin because marriage and the relationship within it is sacrosanct. It's to be between two people and two people only. Or as we'll see here, there is no God but God. There is no Christ but Christ. And the relationship with Him has to be the only thing going. And He is a jealous God. And if we worship anything other than him, including ourselves, then that ruins that relationship. It cheapens it. It uh, dilutes it. So he says, this has to be special between me and my bride. And if you get the point that our physical marriages reflect the spiritual marriage between Christ and his bride and then you read those scriptures that say how jealous he is and how he despised Israel when she went after other lovers, then you begin to understand the spiritual meaning, and sex outside marriage cannot have the same meaning that it does within, and it cheapens it. And then you have trouble understanding the epitome of what it should be because if you experienced all kinds of other stuff, that was just physical, and you lose the meaning. And that's why this world has a missing dimension in sex, as Herbert Armstrong explained. They don't get the real spiritual meaning of it. And we'll see more of it as we go along. So she wanted to be just with him. Then he answers in verse 8, If you know not, O you fairest among women. So she had kind of put her looks down a little bit. I'm not, not quite as good looking as I ought to be. But in his mind, you're the best. You are the fairest, the most beautiful of all women, in my view. Now, well, there are quite a few scriptures that show that there will be many, many daughters of the end time church, that it would be split and splintered, and that he is going to choose which of those is the fairest, the most beautiful spiritually speaking, in his eyes. It can't be physical, can it? Because most people look better in clothes than out of them after, say, age 30 or so, in any case. So, the whole church is old. I mean, like 60, 70, 80, 90, most of us. There's a few young ones. But most of the church is old. So, if it was speaking physically, nah. Uh, Dress them up to here. (laughs) Uh, Because there's there's not a whole lot left that's the fairest among women. No, it's a spiritual thing that he's talking about. Those who have overcome and grown and prepared themselves character-wise and spiritually to be his bride. So the physical has really very little to do with that, if anything. So the fairest among women will be the 144,000 ultimately spiritually best of all peoples who have ever lived. 50, 60, 70 billion. Pick a number. He will choose out of those 144,000. And he will choose here at the end one of the daughters of the church. Daughters of Zion. Daughters of Jerusalem, the church, to begin working through to gather others too. So it's a tall order to become the fairest among the women. So he says, If you don't know where I am, go your way forth by the footsteps of the flock and feed your kids beside the shepherd's tents. He says, if you don't know where I'm taking my flock today and where I'm going to have lunch, what do you do? You track me. You follow the footsteps of the flock. Where did the herd go? They leave footprints. Every hunter knows that. Follow the tracks. What does Christ say? This is the way. Walk you in it. Pattern your life and your footsteps after mine. So, if you don't know where I am, he says, follow the right footsteps. Follow mine. You'll find me. There I'll be. Feed your kids beside the shepherd's tents. Well, if you see, I mean, wherever the pasture's goods, where the shepherds are going to go. So he says, look for where the shepherd's tents are. That's, That's a clue. And then maybe you'll see mine too. And follow the tracks. And... There you'll find me. Well, aren't we supposed to be seeking Christ with all our heart right now? Are we supposed to be finding Him? Well, here's a clue. <laughs> Follow His footsteps, and He'll be at the, He'll be in the last set. That's where He'll be. I have compared you, O oh my love, to a company of horses and Pharaoh's chariots. Pharaoh only picked the best looking horses for his chariots. You, you privates down there can have the bony nags, but I am going to have the finest chari- horses in my chariots. You can bet on that. Your cheeks are comely with rows of jewels, your neck with chains of gold, <coughs> most precious, prettiest things on earth. We will make you borders of gold with studs of silver. While the king sits at his table, my spikenard sends forth the smell thereof. So, they begin to describe each other physically and how appealing they are to each other. Now, if this is speaking of Christ and his bride, what do we need to be doing right now? We need to be making ourselves as appealing to him as we possibly can. What did Isaiah say? Here am I, send me. What did Esther do before King Ahasuerus? She dressed as... Well, she didn't dress all up with all the stuff that the other girls did. Her beauty was interior as well as exterior, and it didn't need a whole lot of decoration because she was lovely inside and out. And Ahasuerus had to see that. Well, here they talk about uh, the beauty and also the adornment that they would want to put on each other. And I'll read you some scriptures about that a little later on. But this is an introduction. A bundle of myrrh is my well-beloved to me. He shall lie all night between my breasts. That signifies closeness, the beating of the heart. He has his ear between her breasts and can hear the beating of her heart and feel close and secure and comforted. And we need to come to have that with Christ where we feel secure and strong and comforted. Now, Paul didn't always feel that in his Christian walk, did he? He says, I have to be very careful lest I become a castaway. He realized that no matter his position as an apostle, no matter how much he had preached, if he let his mind go the wrong way, He could fall away. He could be wrong. But there toward the end of his life, he says, Well, as I look back, I have grown. I have changed. And he says, I fought the good fight. I've run the course. I know I'm going to make it now. So we need to come from our insecurities, which are brought on by our sins and our lacks and our faults that make us insecure. We need to be overcoming and growing so we can say, well, I'm a little too suntanned, but maybe I'm making progress here. Maybe I'm still a little beautiful to Him, I hope. You know? But He's going to choose the fairest one and the fairest ones. He makes that clear here. And she wants Him as close as possible, lying between her breasts at night. Uh, my beloved is to me as a cluster of camphor in the vineyards of Engedi. Uh, that's an aromatic oil. Behold, you are fair, my love. Behold, you are fair. You have dove's eyes. Behold, you are fair, my beloved. Yes, pleasant. Also, our bed is green. The beams of our house are cedar and our rafters of fir. Uh, well, she met him at lunch out among the sheep. And... Uh, there weren't any houses out there, so they were lying underneath the trees and in the grass. Our bed is green. So it's it's speaking of married people here. He wouldn't be lying with his head between her breasts if they weren't married. So this isn't just a betrothal. This is marriage. But it did include these other virgins up here who were chasing after him. And we'll, as I said, we'll see that it... Expands to 144,000. A little more of that kind of language. I am the Rose of Sharon. Uh, I think that's the Camellia. Uh, The Lily of the Valleys, or Whiteness, as the Lily among Thorns. Uh, The Zion Lily over here is called the Sago Lily. And there are those right here in Zion National Park. Uh, You're going to see some direct connection here in a little bit to the topography that we are today sitting in, and that's one reason I wanted to go into this in the beginning of this series of sermons. The lily of the valleys, as the lily among thorns, Uh, Ezekiel tells us there in about chapter 2 or 3, I think it is, that right now we would be living among briars, thorns, and scorpions, and indeed we are. Uh, they will be removed soon. The thorns will go. And then it will be the whiteness of the lily and the peace of beautiful flowers without thorns and briars. <coughs> anyway, as the lily among thorns, so is my love among the daughters. Line up all these splinter churches. And he says, compared to the one I want... The rest of them are thorns. Now, if we're going to be that, and we have a chance to be that, there's a pretty standard, pretty high standard being set here, isn't there, of what we need to be? I would say so. And he says he's going to choose just one. And then he will gather others from here, there, and everywhere out of the others as individuals that he wants to work with as his 10% remnant. There's why tithing is so important. Because it pictures his 10% remnant. (laughs) That which he chooses out of all. It is, as I said last week, I think, there in Malachi, it is a salvational issue. It is not a minor doctrine. If you don't tithe, you're not in the church. Anyway, as the apple tree among the trees of the wood, so is my beloved among the sons. Uh, That would be speaking of Christ. Analogy is the apple tree. There are a lot of trees out there that don't produce much, but apple trees produce some pretty nice fruit. (laughs) A lot of people like apples. So is my beloved among the sons. I sat down under his shadow with great delight, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. So she's comparing her husband here, new husband, to an apple tree, a sweet apple off the tree, the choice of the tree. Uh, Christ calls us, if we're part of it, the apple of his eye, the one apple on the tree that he wanted. So lily among thorns, apple off the apple tree, the best looking apple on there is the one he wants. So that analogy is used here as well, just like it is there in Zechariah 2 that I just quoted. So she sat under his shadow, shadow with great delight and tasted of his fruits. It's a physical analogy as well. Uh, but it reminds me of how John, of the, all the apostles, when they were sitting around the campfire or whatever, he would actually lean on Christ's chest. Uh, they had the closest relationship among those disciples. It wasn't homosexual. Uh, but they had a love that was a very, very close man friendship, just as David and Jonathan did. I think its you wouldn't have to question David's orientation, would you really? <laughs> I don't think so if you read the whole story. So Jonathan wasn't his boyfriend. But they were very, very deep friends, just as Christ and John were. And Christ, in every analogy in the Bible, talks about His bride, not about His boyfriend. So, uh, I mean, some queers go there, but that's not even a consideration whatsoever. I'm glad we're not incorporated, the government wouldn't let me say that word. Anyway, <clears throat> verse 4, "...He brought me to the banqueting house, and His banner over me uh, was love." So, it's like he flew a flag over her and said, this one's the one I love. Uh, everybody see the flag? Leave this one alone. She's mine. He points, he points her out. Says, stay me with flagons, comfort me with apples, for I am lovesick. Not sick of love. That's kind of translated badly. I'm lovesick. But it was written by a bunch of Victorian uh, translators back in 1611, too. That was probably pre-Victorian, but it was still very, very straight-laced, and they wouldn't say it if they had a mouthful. So, uh, lovesick is the correct trans, uh, correct meaning there. His left hand is under my head, and his right hand does embrace me. So they're in this; they're laying side by side, and uh, his right hand was free to fondle and embrace, if you will. This is a pretty close relationship they're describing here, isn't it? Now, once we see the proof that this is Christ and His bride, we need to think about this. How close does Christ want us to be with Him? Just as a brother? Just as a Savior? Just as a Redeemer? No. He wants us to be lover-close, is how close He wants us to be with Him. That's why he made what he made and made it for humans to be a part of so that they could understand, at least on a physical level, somewhat an inkling of how close we will ultimately be with him. You cannot get as close in a marriage relationship as we will be with him ultimately. And he uses this to try to get that across to us. Now, he's pretty plain in what he speaks here, and it'll get even plainer than what we've seen so far before we're done with the book. But remember, God created man in his own image. So, the Father and the Son are male. But then he created woman... To fit perfectly together as a help mate or meet or mate in every way for that man. And you know what? As the Creator, they went through for no telling how long before they actually created the earth we live on or recreated it as it is today. And also, how to make not only man, patterned after them, that wasn't too hard, but now how do we make something that is perfectly mated with him? On the same level, same type of mind, same intelligence, but a completely different body that works so good with his. So, what did they do? They designed all... The parts, the ears, the eyes, the nose, the breasts. Shall I go further south? They designed all the parts, all the pieces, and how they would fit together, and how the nerves would all work. God designed all of that. And then they put it all together and said, Here, Adam, here's one that's perfect for you. And he says, I think you did a good job. So, understand that God is not a prude, okay? The one that figured all this out and designed it and made it isn't a prude. And we don't need to look at things the way some churches and some people do. I knew a deacon in one church area, I want him to say which one, many years ago. He married a Catholic girl. They were not the church sin, but he married a girl that was Catholic. And she had been taught all her life that her body was evil. That it was a, a horrible, despicable thing. And it should never be seen. They had been married for decades. And had three or four children. And in those probably 30, 35 years, he had never seen his wife's body. Because she was Catholic, or had been raised Catholic, and she had been taught that her body was foul and evil, so you had to make, you had to have children, uh, and Catholics have lots of them, but you had to do it under covers, no lights, and don't raise the sheets. That's that. That's their religion. It's what they believe. They've been taught from this tall, just like these girls over here. Polygamists have been taught since they're this long that their only function is to breed. You're just here to have children. I heard I heard a little girl say it one day. I was born to breed. She was this tall. She had been indoctrinated at that point. So when they are assigned some old guy to be their husband, he is only obligated to come in about once a week, once a year, and breed her so they can keep having kids to be baptized for dead people. It's just weird. And God doesn't think that way. That's not God. He designed it all, He made it all, and He made it, I'll show you a scripture, He made it beautiful and honorable. So let's not get too squeamish and curl our toes too much in our shoes as we read what God made and what He intended to be done with it, okay? I know with all of our different backgrounds, we can get a little squeamish. And uh, and you've got to consider people's background. I understand that. Some girls have been molested when they were this tall. You know, and they've had a terrible experience with the physical side of life and of marriage. And with all those things and backgrounds, there can be difficulties. But we have to... We have to begin to be converted and as deep as scars as some of those things are from dad or uncle or cousin or whatever, we have to begin to put that in the past and slowly, perhaps, come to understand things the way God made them and the way He intended them and in it's part of our conversion to leave those sins, those scars and abuses in the past, and come to understand and hopefully even begin to joyfully participate in what God made to be a joy. And I understand there's a transition there for a lot of people uh, that is not easy, but everything in this world basically is contrary to everything God ever did. So, if you've got to be changed or converted from this, you also do this and this and this. And I, and I understand some things have been so bad for so long. Like the lady in... Uh, I mean, she had been in the church at that point for probably 20 years. And she understood some of these things, I'm sure. But her husband still hadn't seen her body. <laughs> you know, those scars and that teaching was so deep that it wasn't easy to overcome. And I would doubt... She's probably dead by now. But I would doubt before she died that she ever got completely past that. You know, as human beings, sometimes there are things that... They're just hard to get past. And they leave scars. you just got to do the best you can. So as I present this, I'm trying to present it from God's viewpoint of what He designed and what He made And why it's lovely, and why it's beautiful, and how we ought to keep it that way, and how it ought to have great and deep spiritual meaning for us, uh, as Herbert Armstrong addressed. So, uh, God is no prude, and He describes things as they really are. All right, let's get back on track here. Uh, His right hand embraces me. So, God intended in a marriage for hands to go everywhere. I charge you, O you daughters of Jerusalem, by the deer and by the uh, antelope and elk of the field, that you stir not up, nor awake my love, till he please. So, she's talking to the animals around. Don't come around snorting and blowing and stomping and running and, and wake my love up, because he's taking a nap here between my breasts. Then she says, The voice of my beloved, behold, he comes, leaping upon the mountains, skipping upon the hills. Her husband can leap tall buildings, and you know, like we we talk about. uh, This is a man of men that a mountain is nothing to. He can climb it and run over it. Uh, Man, he's something. Well, isn't that the way we all look at Christ? uh, The Creator of the universe. He can do anything. There's nothing my hero can't do. My beloved is like a deer or a young heart. Behold, he stands behind our wall. He looks forth at the windows, showing himself through the lattice. Maybe he teases her a little bit. Can you see me? Can you see me now? Uh, you know? I'm not coming in. Do you say you see me? So, there's a there's some repartee going on here. There's some a little bit of teasing. There's... There's laughter. God is not all solemn. My beloved spoke and said to me, Rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. So they've had lunch. <clears throat> they've made love. He's had a nap. And he says, Now get up. we got work to do. So there's work and there's play. And there was in that relationship. And there should be in human relationships, as a type. Now, we've been going through a period of severe discipline and chastening because we were not the fairest, because we were not what Christ wanted us to be. We were lackadaisical. We were half-hearted. Nobody wants a lover like that. I mean, in modern terms, you'd describe it as, in crude terms, a dead lay, Nothing there. Oh, okay. Whatever. No, that's not the way God intended it. It should be a very passionate, loving thing. And He wants our love to Him to be passionate. We'd say zealous, maybe, normally, regarding Revelation 3. But when you're reading Song of Songs, instead of zealous, you say passionate. Because it's a sexual relationship here that's being talked about and it's the right kind of one. Just like Revelation 3 is talking about the right kind of zealous relationship, this is talking in a totally different uh, formula or, or type of a passionate relationship. Okay? Either way, it needs to be intense. Whichever analogy you might be using at the moment, Christ expects intenseness. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. Might, passion, zeal, they're all synonyms. So we're to be on fire for Christ. And that's what this is saying. So he says, okay, this this luncheon is over. Come away. And here's what he says then, which is important, I think, for us to grasp right now. For lo, the winter is past... The rain is over and gone. The flowers appear on the earth. The time of the singing of birds has come. And the voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. So this is springtime. Okay? This is like Passover time. Uh, I mean, around here, just recently, I've been hearing the doves cooing. And uh, noticing more and more birds in the trees. And the hummingbirds just came back from Mexico four days ago. Uh, And they're going to be buzzing around this house all summer long if I keep the feet out. But the trees are coming to life. These trees last week were just barely budding, and I was hoping they'd be in full leaf by the time uh, today came so we could sit out and picnic in the shade. (coughs) So they just came on. It's springtime. Things are coming alive right now. This is what he's talking about. Doesn't he say there in Joel 2? I will come and give you the former and the latter rain in the first month. First month of the year comes in the springtime. So here, this analogy is set in the springtime. Uh, And that's what he's saying. He says, The fig tree puts forth her green figs. The vines with the tender grape give a good smell. Arise, my love, my fair one, and come away. So he's talking about going somewhere to do something. Well, we can go to other scriptures, and we can see that he is going to gather his fair one, his virgin daughter of Israel, the fairest of them all, to a place, to a gathering place, in the springtime is when it begins. And then once they are assembled got to go somewhere else to build a temple. Got to go somewhere else to build Jerusalem. So the analogy fits Haggai, Zechariah, all the prophecies, right here in the superlative of all songs. He goes on to say, O my dove that are in the clefts of the rock, in the secret places of the stairs. That describes a geological formation. It was understood way back when this was written that this geological uh, formation we have here is like stair steps. We're sitting at the base of the first step right here. The red cliffs are right here around us. We're sitting at the bottom step. you got the red ones you've got to go over, and you can see the white cliffs of Zion, second step. And if you go higher in elevation, like Bryce, you see the pink. So, three stair steps of color right here in a geology that goes from the Hurricane Fault Line in the Kolob Cliffs over to the uh, Coxcomb, halfway over to Page, is where this three-step geology is. And if you go up here on a, a lookout on the way up to the Kaibab Plateau, you can look out and clearly see all three steps. The stair step goes right up. And if you study the geology even closer, from the bottom of the Grand Canyon up it, and then up to these three, there's even more steps, more stratas uh, that add up. But these are the ones we can see. So, he calls her his dove. A dove is a very sweet, uh, harmless bird with a sweet sound, nice to hear, pleasant Uh, Not strident, not hawkish, not uh, mean or tearing, but a dove. So he describes his bride bride as sweet and loving and pleasant sounding. If you want to hear the opposite, go to the Proverbs and read about how it's better to live in the corner of a house than with a brawling woman in a big house, and on and on. No, he wants his bride to be well-mannered, to be sweet, to be soft. Doesn't mean she doesn't have character. But she's not to be argumentative and um, difficult. It's hard to live with someone who's difficult. (laughs) It just is. So he doesn't want us to be difficult. Doesn't mean we can't be fun and have a sense of humor, but... uh, here he describes her as a dove that are in the clefts of the rock well zion is a lot of rock a lot of canyons and it is in the secret places of the stairs it's in the middle step primarily the white the white of zion some red there i don't remember seeing a tinge of pink that's higher more like bryce Let me see your countenance. Let me hear your voice. For sweet is your voice, and your countenance is comely. So he says he's going to meet her in the secret places of the stairs. That's where we are. That's where God brought us. Now, these are called the Canaan Mountains out here by the Mormons, probably, that named them. And where were they waiting to go into the Promised Land? into the land of Canaan. Well, we're just outside the Canaan Mountains. Interesting, we're named that. And these red ones right along here, I saw on one map, are called the Cliffs of Zion. And if you go right up Cottonwood Canyon here and top out, you can see Zion. So these are the cliffs just before you go up to Zion. And above these red ones, there's a whole line of white ones there that lead over to the main Zion Canyon. That's where his dove will be in the springtime in the secret places of the stairs. Now, he's going to take us into the stairs and hide us for safety a little later. That's where her place is going to be. She'll flee to Zion, the refuge from Jerusalem, when it's taken over by the Gentiles. So then it says, "...take us the foxes, the little foxes, that spoil the vines, for our vines have tender grapes." Take us, capture us, kill us, catch the foxes. What do the foxes do? Well, when the fruit's coming on, foxes like to eat the tender grapes. And foxes in the Bible uh, have the nickname of, well, uh, Herod was an Edomite. And the nickname for Edomites was foxes. (laughs) Well, what are the Edomites trying to do? They're trying to eat up Jacob. They're trying to destroy Jacob. Just like they destroy the grapes. So the analogy fits. And many of these Mormons around here are Edomites. Uh, I have no doubt of that. Because of the prophecies that describe what's going to happen to them. As well as Ammonites and Moabites. That have misused and abused uh, sex and marriage terribly. uh, From what God is describing here. So he said, catch the foxes. Don't let the Edomites... Uh, Destroy my crop, my vineyard. He refers to the church as his vine or his vineyard in many places. So let's not let the foxes destroy us. My beloved is mine. Don't let the foxes have her. I will protect her from the Edomites. And I am his. He feeds among the lilies. In other words, my body is like a bed of lilies and that's where he goes to feed all night long. "...until the daybreak and the shadows flee away, turn, my beloved, and be you like a roe or a young heart, upon the mountains of Bethar, or the mountains of separation, or division." Uh, we'd use the word cleavage. Uh, but he feeds at night, with her, or on her. And I think spiritually speaking, we have been in great darkness... And hopefully the night is over for the church. It says the people that dwelt in darkness have seen a great light there in uh, is that Isaiah 9. I think it's 9. Now they see. The church has been in darkness now for 32 years since Herbert Armstrong died, essentially. Give or take a little. And Christ has been there, but the church hasn't been able to see where it's going. We've still had a relationship with him, but he's had his head turned from us. And this picture is a time when the darkness breaks, and we can see again. We are the people that have been in darkness that will see a great light. And it's right there in the context of seven where unto this virgin who conceives, Christ is born, or she gives birth to, or he redeems her. He delivers her. So he will deliver us from darkness into the light. The analogy here fits the prophecies all the way through. Until the break, the daybreak, the shadows flee away. And he says, Turn, my beloved. What's he supposed to do? Very soon now, he's supposed to turn his head to us and smile, and his good graces and his blessings come instead of. Curses and frustration. That's where we are. So turn, my beloved, and be like a or a young heart, upon the mountains of Bethel, or Bethar. Enjoy me, in other words. So, He has been waiting for us to turn our hearts with passion to Him so that He can enjoy us. He describes this as being a a stench in his nostrils. And then he says, I want your prayers to become a sweet savor to me. We read about the aromatic oils and so on back here. He wants to see a sweet, righteous dove before him. He doesn't want us like we've been. let's say you and your mate have a big fight and you're thinking mean nasty thoughts of vengeance frustration may even say things you don't really mean well you meant them right then but maybe a little later you didn't oh I didn't really mean that I do love you but it's like Christ and his bride had a quarrel she wasn't living up to what she ought to be so he says get out of here I can't, I'm not even going to look at you. I can't stand to look at you. Now, that's the that's bad end of a pretty bad quarrel. I can't stand to... I don't want you in my sight. That's the way he's been with the church for the last 30-some years. So he's. that's why he says, turn to me with all your heart. I hope we're getting there because this thing's real close. Where he'll turn and say... And you know, before before He even turns, you know what He's going to have to do? He's going to have to forgive us. Just like you and your mate when you get in a fight. At some point here, I'm going to have to get over this and I'm going to have to say I forgive you and I love you. And now can we hug and kiss and make up? That's right where we are. He's beginning to think her attitude's changing. She's not going to scream at me anymore. She's not going to run from me anymore. She's not going to say, not tonight, dear, anymore. She's ready to come around and embrace me. And then he'll say, okay, I'll remove your sins like a cloud. Just disappears. You've seen clouds do that. Just vaporize and go away. That's what I'm going to do with your sins. That's Isaiah 44. And he says there in Zechariah 3, "I'll forgive your sins in one day." And I think he means a literal day, not a thousand years, in that particular case. I'll forgive your sins in one day. What better day than Passover? What if it was tonight? That ought to put terror in your heart. How are you going to pray this afternoon? What if it's tonight? What if he looks at me tonight and says, I forgive you, come give me a hug? And you say, Well, I've been out in the sun and I'm peeling and I'm a little red and I'm sore here and I'm not looking my best. And he says, well, you're the fairest, my dear. I want you. I want you. I look forward to that day. But it truly scares me. Let's just stop there.